This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 13th of August 2019. And here is my fabulous open co-host, as always, Jon. <laughs> Do you mean I'm doing this free of charge? Uh, I think there's a proprietary core to you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid my wife is my sole and only patent and license holder. There you go. There you go. I knew it was in there somewhere. So, yes, obviously, uh, linking towards the fact that uh, we're going to be talking about open source today and some of the changes that have been happening in this space. But before we launch into that, uh, some housekeeping notes that are uh, that are at the top of the list, which is uh, Manning Publications um, how, are having a promotion at the moment. They're, all of their video courses are uh, just $25 US at uh, manning.com. And uh, I believe that runs for the whole of August. Uh, yeah, that's the idea in the whole of August. Uh, get uh, low-cost video courses on uh, quite a lot of interesting stuff. Manning Publications being a good friend of our podcast, um, giving us some freebies to give away from time to time. So we kind of return the favour there. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, remember... Reminder for people um, that sign up to our Patreon, there are discount codes available for Patreons for uh, all Manning Publications um, books. So uh, if you're interested in that, please uh, do sign up and become a Patreon. Yeah, that's actually available for all patrons at all levels. And uh, we continue to uh, make progress on our YouTube (laughs) subscriber count. Uh, we're still a little bit shy of that elusive 100 subscribers, so come on, everybody. Get out your, your web browsers, head over to YouTube, search for Roaring Elephant, find the podcast there, subscribe, hit the notification bell, maybe even uh, comment on some of the episodes if you enjoy listening to them there. Anyway, that's yes. uh, enough for me about YouTube. No, that's actually a good point, because uh, I do look at the uh, YouTube uh, uploads from time to time, or regularly even, and nobody's actually commenting on them. Feel free to do so. If you don't want to send them by email to podcast.org, feel free to comment there. Uh, we do look at those uh, yep. comment uh, threads, I guess it's called. So feel free to interact at that point too. All right. Anything else on the housekeeping front? Um, nope. I'm just wondering if you need to mention that uh, what we say on the podcast is our own opinions, only our own opinions and not related to our employers at all. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Also, <laughs> let's be clear, we are not lawyers. So anytime we're talking about software licensing, again, it's just our own opinion. Please do your own fact-checking, get your own legal teams to uh, verify um, you know, how that might apply to your mm-hmm. particular situation. Yeah, now the subject here of the whole open source licensing has been a bit of a flame war going on left and right, center and everywhere. Uh, we're going to try not to be inflammatory, I think, as people are used to our podcast. Our yeah. We try to be objective, look at both ends of the spectrum. And uh, hopefully uh, provide a nice summary of the situation as we see it today. Yeah. So we started off with this, uh, yeah, this thought about doing a an episode on some of the the way that the open source industry is changing. Um, and we we started thinking about this probably about um, a good month or so ago. And it's it sort of we've been chewing over exactly how we want to handle it because as as Jan mentioned, there's a lot of there's a lot of vitriol um, around in this particular 
sort of space at the moment. You know, if you certainly if you go and take a look at um, some of the news articles, and especially if you go and look at some of the comments and some of the Reddit threads and other things like that on you know organisations changing licences or um, so say predatory tactics of other organisations. Um, consuming and holding open source to ransom, you know, the, all this kind of, um, all these kind of words being used. It's not a terribly, uh, it's not a terribly nice subject to talk about, but it is an important subject to talk about because it does look like um, the industry as a whole is changing. And I think it's useful to understand really what those changes, where those changes came from, but also what those changes will mean to you know, all of us using, consuming, developing open source software in the future. Yeah, actually, when, when you said that, something struck me. You talk about the industry of open source. I think that's one of the base changes behind the whole idea. Open source was supposed, was used to be a hobby. Those things people did in the free time and just for the fun of it. And now, as you say, it's become an industry and there's no way that that happens without the, the ground rules changing a little bit. Perception, yeah. how people look at it. Um, maybe a good idea to just talk about the origins and uh, what the whole what, what open source actually is supposed to mean. Because uh, I've been in conversations and there are different opinions of what open source is supposed to mean. So before we start talking about the good and the bad, maybe give our view on what we think open source means. Mm-hmm. Want to go first? <laughs> no, it's all no. over you. I thought if I start making the statement, I can say you have to go first. And okay, whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's always coming back to the free beer and free speech thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you'll agree with me, but feel free to disagree if you want to. Makes a better podcast, I guess. Uh, that we're on the uh, standpoint of free speech and not free beer. Open source, yeah. the idea is that the source is open. You can look at the code, see how people do things, learn from the code, look at problems at the code, change the code, submit changes to it for the code, let's call it that, uh, make it better, whatever, be collaborative in the approach. Open source does not equal free use of everything, every time, whenever you want to use it for. And during the whole history of open source, that never really was the the, the case because when I started in this industry all of these eons ago, you had open source and you had a thing called shareware, and those are two different things. Mm-hmm. And freeware as well, yep. sort of, sort of sub component of that, I guess. But yeah, I think that's that's all pretty accurate. The and aligns with my my thinking around sort of open source as a whole. I think the. The idea, sort of going back a little bit further, was around. Um, it started off definitely as as people with hobbies, but also, um, you know, very heavily came from academia as well. Yep. So, organisations just you know developing stuff, sharing it, um, you know, um, bug fixing, sort of bug fixes being shared, you know, between organisations or academic organisations. Um, and you know the, the code being free and open just seemed to be a better, faster way to you know continue to accelerate and develop that code. Of course, the where a lot of the um, modern adoption of um, open source really started to accelerate for you know, more of the enterprise space was um, was you know really Linux, mm-hmm. starting with. 
um, Unix originally, and with yeah organizations like um, IBM um, and Sun, and you know all of the um, you know digital or deck um, back in the day, having their hugely powerful. Um, sort of proprietary hardware and their proprietary Unix operating systems, people were looking for um, sort of a easier to, uh, well, certainly cheaper to run, but also <laughs> easier to develop and maintain and, and sort of uh, an alternative to those operating systems in some work cases that they could run on you know, traditional commodity um, hardware, x86 hardware in many cases. So, you know, the, the sort of the rise of, of Linux was probably, I think, fair to say, the thing that most enterprises first started to see open source entering their organizations. Yeah, I would be hard pressed to find an example of another software project that uh, was open source before Linux was uh, on the scene. I think it all started with Linux and the whole GNU ecosystem around it and then all of the applications on top of it. Uh, I think you're pretty, pretty correct in just stating categorically that Linux was the first one to actually make the scene. Uh, I don't know about the first one. I know that, I mean, you've, you've got obviously the Apache web server. Um, which ran on Linux. Which did run on Linux. But <laughs> not, the original, I'm not sure that Linux started out as you know quite, um, obviously, it was it was free open source, as in the source was available and just was out there. But I'm, <laughs> all of the licensing and all that sort of thing didn't it exist later. when Linux yeah, was yeah. Uh, was first sort of. That uh, was an academic thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Linus Torvalds, yeah. I think, he was at the university at that point when he made that thing because yeah. he couldn't get time on the big Unix computers or something like that, and wanted to have something to play with without having to jump all through all the hoops. Because again, that proprietary hardware was very expensive. It still is. All these yeah. supercomputers, you don't get on there just because you want to. It's getting better. Democratization is happening, but still they're very expensive pieces of kit. And you'll have to wait your turn. Having a Linux system in those days was just a easier way to have something where you can develop your stuff on and then move it perhaps to those high HPC environments to make it run at scale. But uh, in those days, the whole education, still today as well, I guess, the um, uh, universities and educations, the thing like peer reviews, sharing your stuff is second nature. That's just how you do this stuff. And that's also how the environment where this open source baby was born. Yeah. Now, we um, came across an article, um, Jan came across an article from CB Insights, which um, we're sort of, uh, you know, the article came out after we'd already started thinking about this, but actually this article is quite a nice way of um, talking about uh, a lot of what's happening in this space. Um, we don't necessarily agree with all of it, but it is a, um, a fairly decent sort of uh, way of talking and thinking about the, the things that are happening and the uh, the differences in sort of open source licensing uh, and you know what differences those actually really make to people so i mean where where should we go next Do you want to talk about sort of um free versus proprietary and and the the copyright side of things uh, well maybe it's good to talk about the distinction between the copy left and uh, non copy left mm. uh, differences because, uh, I mean, it's been more than 10 years ago now when the big uh, battle was going on between uh, Linus and, um, what's the new guy again? I forget his name. 
Stallman? Yes, which is Stallman. Because uh, GNU, of course, is a copyleft uh, license, which kind of means if you use uh, something under that license, whatever you build needs to be published under that license too. And that's the whole viral open source thing. Now, it's a bit of a yeah, bad connotation to the name, uh, I guess, but it does kind of fit because, yeah, if you start using that software, whatever you do will become open source too. Linus never went for that. He was kind of adamantly against it because he was afraid it was going to stop adoption of the software. Having requirements, having limitations, call it what you want on whatever license you're using will, of course, make people think twice before they look at it. That being said, uh, I really don't see GNU as being uh, non-prolific. Uh, the whole GNU thing, it's its everywhere also, so I'm not entirely sure if that uh, helped them back. That being said, GNU has had a couple of versions of their license by now, and the later versions also became non-copyleft licenses, if I'm not mistaken. So I think there's a, um, there's an interesting article which... Um, actually, it's a little bit older, um, but does talk about the um, the sort of the adoption of open source licenses. Licenses. And this is back in 2018, so this will have shifted a little bit since no, then. Not that much. But you know, the interesting thing is, of course, the the largest uh, open source license in usage is the MIT license, with 26 percent. Uh, of projects mm-hmm. adopting that. Apache 2.0 is about 22%, and then GPL 3, which is, of course, the later version at 16%, and GPL 2 down at uh, at 10%. And then from then on, it goes into various other kind of miscellaneous licenses, LGPL being sort of a, down at uh, 6% and BSD at 5%, but then it's kind of all all kind of little licenses from that on. So the really the major players are, are definitely MIT, Apache 2.0, GPL3, and to a certain extent still GPL2. Yeah, but uh, I think that even GPL2 no longer has that uh, copyleft uh, clause in there. I think there was a big difference between uh, version 1 and version 2. I'm not entirely sure. I, 3 definitely doesn't yeah. have it. Yeah. And definitely MIT and Apache don't have it. That was, and I think that's the reason why they're being used most of all. Because um, there's something to be said to be like Debian and have everything must be open source and nothing else is admitted. Mm-hmm. It has a place and there's definitely a lot of people who like that. But, well, I think if you look at the licensing usage, it looks like there's more people interested in, uh, yeah, don't mind people using this within reason just for their own stuff. As long as I play nice, I'm happy with it. Yep. So if we look at um, how organizations um, how organizations are consuming software and how these licenses actually make a difference to them, what do you think the what do you think the impact to a you know a day-to-day from an organization that is running open source software with one of these licenses. What do you think the actual real change to them is? Uh, are you talking about businesses who use the products or yeah. businesses that are taking those libraries to build their own product for sale? Let's let's just start with businesses that are just consuming the software. I think if you're consuming and you don't really care. Um, yes. What you look at that point is uh, what kind of, um, how do you say this, how serious is this thing? 
because it's yeah. one thing to find a library on GitHub. It looks to be exactly what you need right now to fix a problem. Are you going to build that into your own tech three? Maybe if it's a small library and you're happy to look at this and maintain it yourself in your own site, eh, why not? Maybe even commit it back. doesn't really matter. If it's something bigger, like maybe a database system, if it's an RDBMS or a, or, or a NoSQL database, you're not going to be maintaining that yourself. You'll be kind of depending on the people, the project that put that on the open source website where you found it to make sure that this thing keeps running. So from that point of view, it's just consuming it. You're looking at the longevity of the project and licensing. It's good if it has a well-known license. If it's got the license, uh, Acme license version 3, <laughs> yep. then maybe it's a little less serious. If it's an Apache MIT GPL license, okay, people have been thinking about this. They've put something together. They have a, a mindset, have a view, a vision. It, it gives more credibility to the project and the longevity of the project. And that, I think, is where it is. And then the second part of that is, do can I get help for this stuff? Because if you're going to use a big project like that in your own environment, you're going to need help. And either it's through com- community, forums, uh, paid subscriptions, support contracts, whatever. But those are the things I, as a user of the application, will be looking at. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. I think the... In the majority of cases, people that are just consuming the software, I mean, the an organization will always have their legal teams rev, you know, review any um, licensing terms um, as, as a matter of course. But most organizations are reasonably familiar at this, in this day and age with uh, open source licenses and therefore most... Um, you know, legal teams within organizations and procurement teams are reasonably comfortable with the consumption of open source software. And I think in majority of cases, the consumption of open source software is no different to any other form of software for most, for most enterprise organizations. As you say, they really, really don't care. I'd say you, I totally agree on the, the, the legal, technical, practical point of view, but there is a big difference if your team starts using open source. Because I've been in a couple of companies who are totally closed, proprietary source oriented, and then suddenly a open source project became important for them. It's a different way to interact with it. If you're used to having big manuals and guided yeah, a guided experience through the adoption and use of the software. If you go to open source, it's much more of a smorgasbord and help yourself thing. So organizationally within the people teams, there's there can be a little of a culture shock there, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. No, indeed, <laughs> indeed. So what about then for um, the, the second use case that you mentioned of organizations that are um, taking open source, yeah, taking open source, um, say libraries mm-hmm. or projects and incorporating them into a paid for um, service or piece of software that they actually charge. Well, that's very important, of course. And I would actually subdivide that part into two more subcategories. Because on mm-hmm. the one hand, you can adopt this uh, piece of software, library, whatever, and uh, really incorporate it in your own product, which you would then will sell. That's one part. That's called, let's call that development on top of. The other part is uh, taking that open source thing and just serving it as a SaaS layer somewhere, as a hosted environment. Because at that point, you're not making a product that you sell. And that's 
that's important. That's a big difference there. And that's actually the big difference that today is causing all of the ruckus around this whole thing. Going back to the first one, the, the development on top of, uh, it's obviously going to be important. If you're going to go with a copyleft license, you're forcing yourself to also open source your stuff. If you're happy with that, hey, more power to you. Everybody's going to be happy and glad you do that. If you're not happy with that, you will have some restrictions. You'll have to face some restrictions there. Now, quite often in those situations, when they're, uh, when these project, projects are quite large, you'll have probably a way to communicate with the organization behind the team to see if you can have a licensed version, enterprise version, and whatever you want to call it, version, which can be sub-licensed. But it's going to be more involved than just going to GitHub, downloading, uh, incorporating, compiling, selling. You'll have to actually negotiate with the people and whatever they're not nobody says it's going to have to be a paid engagement there it might just be a you give us we give you thing but you have to have an agreement with that company at that point yeah projects that are not copy left but just open source and feel free have at it well yeah there's no reason why you wouldn't uh, take it in there because if the software is offered in that vein you're free to use it in that way yeah, so just uh, been looking at something uh, while you were talking here, just so we can clear a, a few things up. So Uh-oh. GPL GPL two and GPL three or three plus are still strong copyleft licenses. Still okay. The yeah, so the the, um, LSG, the, yeah. the weaker yeah the weaker copyleft licenses are the LGPL oh, okay. variants of those. So LGPL two one um, three and three plus. Um, and then if you go all the way past kind of weak copy left to permissive, you've got, you know, public domain, MIT, um, BSD, and Apache 2.0. A BSD so is not uh, free, right? BSD revised is a fully permissive license, okay. OpenLDAP and LibSSH2. So there's a, quite a nice link that I will add to the show notes, uh, which talks about... Um, a free software license and permissive uh, licenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little, little infographic that mm-hmm. uh, our readers can look at. But it, 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 this, this sort of, I think, should illustrate the fact that this is a really complicated oh, yes. space. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we've, we've, I've been sort of uh, involved in open source technologies for well over twenty years, and I still, I still have to look some of this stuff up because yeah. it. It's just so, it's such a complicated area. And it's not something I spend a massive amount of time really thinking about. We don't really care about this thing because we don't develop software that might use this stuff and has complications on. We're we're users of this software. Me personally, me as a person, not the company I work for, me as a person, I have some MySQL and MariaDB databases running here. I commit patches if I find something weird in it, whatever, I do that, but I don't care about the licensing stuff. The only time yeah. I actually hit that is when I submit a patch and I get the thing back. Yeah, but you have to sign this thing because you have to make sure that you sign off your copyright to oh. us. Yeah, sign a contributor agreement. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, that, that's, a, so that's another interesting um, sort of piece in this whole story, which I don't, I'm not sure, but I haven't seen covered in the article, which is um, called CLAs, aren't they? Contr- contributor licensing? Agreements? Yeah, something is like that. that. Um, which are typically sort of additional um, documents that any contributor uh, of code or any contributor of anything to a project is required to sign that effectively 
um, signs over their copyright of anything they contribute yep. to um, to the project itself, which is, I mean, on the one hand, I I do understand why organisations want inevitable. to do that. that. Yeah, they want to make sure that they have. Um, you know the code that they're sort of putting in. First of all, that that person has the right to actually commit that code in the uh-huh. first place. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that someone has uh, <laughs> taken code from a a project or a um, you know an, an area that they shouldn't have done and just you know contributed it to a completely different project. Yeah. Uh, sometimes knowingly, uh, sometimes you know it might be very innocent. Do, do a search really for the, the Mono project. You'll get a lot of information around this subject oh god yes um so it's it's a really and it that's that's one example there are many examples of projects that once audited have had all kinds of horror stories um sort of thrown up in them so the the cla is is usually a bit of kind of (laughs) glue wear in there that um I guess sort of indemnifies in a sort of way the project itself both ways yeah, because it also protects you, the committer, because the organization also accepts your code as their own. So if you've written something that actually breaks something somewhere, and a heart machine stops and a person dies, hey, sorry, I just committed this to you guys. You took it over. You put it in your code. It's your problem, not mine. So it works both ways. Yeah, but a it, bit of it's, it's example, a, perhaps. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. <laughs> But it, it is a it's another element in this story that if you're developing, you may want to check out and make sure you know it, is there a CLA um, applicable to the particular projects that you're interested in? Because I, you know you you can get around the two. Because what I usually do then, because I don't have the time to do that stuff, is just put your if you do a, a git uh, pull and then do a push back you'll have to go to the CLA thing. But you can also just uh, go on, the, on their forums or mailing list and put your piece of code in that email, say, hey, I made this thing, see if you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. Although, to be clear, the the chances of it being adopted are, unless it's a particularly interesting or useful patch. Yeah. Well, it depends on the quality. And the size. It's also a lot uh, less likely to get adopted just because it means that someone's actually got to go and manually take a look at the code, put it into the source tree. Yeah, but if they're breaking yeah. bug, they will do that. And yeah. they may not As use say, your exact code, but they'll see, oh, there's a problem there and this is how you solve it. Okay, let's fix this thing. So it can, I've, I've used it myself for projects I use here at home and uh, certain things, web interface had a bug somewhere. I just put it on their mailing list and it got fixed in a couple of weeks. I mean, yeah, it's less direct. But if it's yeah. for small things and it's just a one-offs, uh, I don't want to go through a whole sealer thing. It's just a small patch for, for a little buggy somewhere. Yep. No, I agree, agree, agree. And if you're going to do big pieces of code and uh, commit those, then you want to have the CLA because, again, it protects both ways. Yep. And a lot of a lot of company actually products, projects that are not restrictive in the licensing still want the CLA in there, basically to protect the committer. Yep. So, when we talk about um, organizations that are involved in reselling open source and the mixture of open source versus closed or proprietary, um, I do quite like there's a uh, a diagram um, in this article that has uh, moving from skinny through to thick, <laughs> um, sort of starting off at kind of 90% open source software and 10% closed yeah. crust. The CBIT site article, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, moving through to sort of uh, different percentages of open source core and proprietary crust, which is interesting because usually you see it the other way around. <laughs> proprietary core and open source, everything else. But anyway, um, the thing that I particularly like about this is that they give um, different sort of uh, explanations of the uh, you know, productization of... Um, of these different methods of or different splits of open source versus closed within a product, um, the different sort of amount of user control that it potentially gives somebody, um, the type of code base, which is kind of interesting, and also, most importantly, examples of organizations that, uh, that, that sort of uh, play at either end of this space. So, for example, at the skinny end, sort of 90% open source, 10% closed, uh, one of the examples is uh, you know, HashiCorp and, and Databricks, where is if you go all the way to the 10% open source core with 90% closed crust, you've got people like uh, GitHub and Fastly and MuleSoft. So it's I kind of I, I like this because I've not I'm not seen quite mm-hmm. such a um, eloquent way of describing mm-hmm. the different. Uh, different brands, I guess, of, of open source versus closed mm. organizations. And also the inclusion of GitHub there actually illustrates that the fact that something is only 10% open, co- open core and 90% closed crust doesn't mean it's not a valuable and very much used, quote, uh, air quotes, open source project. Because GitHub, I mean, if you ask anybody to give you examples of an open source project, Linux is going to be the first one, GitHub probably is going to be the second one. Yep. While, yep. as you look, if you look at this, it's very little open source. And yeah, yeah. why? Well, very nor- very easily, GitHub, the Git protocol, the Git command, is not that much code. GitHub is a website. It's a service. It's a, it's a repository. Service. It's a SaaS service. Yeah. 90% of GitHub is that SaaS service, and it uses that Git library underneath to do the actual integration of the software, version controlling, whatever. But again... It's never as cut and dried as saying, oh, this isn't 100% open source, so it's useless, it's bad, I can't use it. No, it really depends on how it's being uh, incorporated, how it's integrated, how the how the project behaves around it. Yeah, definitely. And so there's a, that's your source um, of that uh, diagram, which is Joseph Jacks. So nice, uh, nice diagram there. I really, yep. really, really do like that. Actually, just about the CB Insight article itself, it's actually hard to figure out who wrote this because there's no real name attached to it, nor date, although it's only about a week old if uh, your Google foo was uh, up to, up to yeah. snuff. But it does although kind of it, get together a lot of different things in one place, which is very nice. And it also does suggest that this is only a subset. You can actually download the full report if you're prepared to give all yeah. sorts of details. And this one is already quite large. I mean, it's a pretty hefty read to go through this, so... Uh, yeah. I've been debating to get the big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure we've got time for that right now. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you but, an audible book. Well, yeah, yeah. Go to sleep with it. Um, <laughs> so the moving on from sort of that side of things, um, the next kind of big, big area to talk about, I think, is... Um, who are the primary developers of open source software? Sorry, who are the primary 
organizations involved in the development of open source software, at least according to um, GitHub. Um, uh, I see where you make the distinction there, because the subheader is actually who are the developers of open source software, and you put in yeah. organizations there. But actually, yeah. one of the things that the article the, has concluded, air quotes again, is that over time, since the beginning of the 80s uh, and today, where at the beginning, as I said, more hobby projects, more people doing it. Recently, it's much more big organizations that are doing it. Yeah, open source is big business. And the names here kind of echo that. And the, the largest contributor of, uh, of open source code at the moment, according to this article, is Microsoft um, mm-hmm. with 7,700 unique contributions made by employees. Um, with Google in in second place with 5,500 and uh, Red Hat in third place with 3,300. And it's kind of a a weird numbers thing going on here because (laughs) Intel is is behind that with 2,200. And Facebook is next, which isn't with 1,100, which would make beautiful symmetry. (laughs) Um, But it's actually 1,700 contributions made by employees. So it's... I mean, those names are some of the big names in quote-unquote open source. Now, there's a few people um, fairly conspicuous by their absence. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's also some kind of somewhat strange skewing of of the numbers here as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Microsoft are relatively famous for having boosted their... um, their sort of open source contribution numbers initially by putting all of their documentation mm-hmm. um, for their various products uh, onto onto Git. And then, of course, any change major documentation is a, a bump in their open source contributions, which is uh, an interesting way of doing it. I'm not sure I complete... I mean, it is true. If, if the stuff is out there, then and it is on Git, and that's what is being tracked then unless you are specifically going to exclude documentation, then the numbers are the numbers, and well done Microsoft for playing the game. Um, but <laughs> that being said, um, the sort of there's uh, uh, another uh, sort of, um, I'm not quite sure I'd say infographic, but another piece of information further on down, which does talk about the, uh, the various different projects on GitHub and number of contributors. And sure enough, you know, in, in first place is Microsoft VS Code. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that all of those 19,000 contributors aren't contributing to the documentation, but I suspect that's not the case. I suspect that there is actual um, hardcore development going on yeah. there. Now, actually, the reason that uh, the article has both, uh, both graphs in there is to demonstrate that, yes, Microsoft has 7,700 contributions. So they're the biggest one out there, right? Yeah, but that's in all of the uh, uh, projects. And if you just look yeah. at VS Code, there's 19,000 contributors there. So yeah. the point that the article is trying to make is that, yes, even though these big organizations have a lot of people doing stuff, most stuff is done by not employees of these, of these companies. And that's also how the business thing works. You want to have the yeah. company do the core things, make sure there's a stable basis, that it has a vision, a direction. It doesn't go wild, grow wild, and does a lot of different forks and whatever. You want to have some direction there. But most of the, I'm not going to call it polish because it's a lot more than just polish, but a lot more, a lot of the actual work is done by 
third party people, you, me, small companies that are using the stuff and contributing back. And basically that's the big difference there because 7,700 across Microsoft, across all of the things, including documentation, just one of those projects, the biggest one at the moment of GitHub VS Code, already has 19,000. So there's a, a very big difference there of what the organizations are doing and what the rest of the world is doing. Yeah. There's actually, I've just noticed something else that's kind of slightly entertaining here. So, and this is just due to the, the age of the graphics that are being used in the article is if, obviously, if you look at the, uh, um, the, the first infographic that talks about, uh, Microsoft, Google, Red Hat. Um, if you look at the second one, actually in seventh place is Ansible. And look, there's a little IBM logo. It's too fanciful. So Red Hat no longer recognized as the uh, organization behind Ansible, apparently, according to this infographic. Um, uh, Red Hat but, doesn't exist anymore. Well, I kind of, I think this top open source projects thing is, <laughs> I'd love to see this plotted over time because I have a feeling like React, I think, has been on a, a bit of a, an upward trend. And I think, you know, Angular is one of those mm-hmm. that is on the downward trend. And mm. yeah, Ans- Ansible, Ansible, I think, has continued to stay relatively popular. Obviously, Kubernetes is going through a huge hype curve. Um, yeah, and be, you know, continuing to be continuing to be very popular. So, and, and I've I've no, I've no idea, or I had no idea that definitely typed would be up in the top ten kind of contributed open source projects. That just blows my mind. Never heard of it. No, indeed, exactly my point. <laughs> it is also noteworthy though that Kubernetes is kind of low in there. I mean, considering how much hype and popularity Kubernetes enjoys at the moment, that are at less than half of VS Code. I tell you, the the project that surprises me most about its position in this is TensorFlow, being the third, um, you know, third most active or third largest number of contributors. That that is, I find, incredibly interesting. It's a very young project, right? It's only a couple of years old, so there's still a lot of things happening there. While Kubernetes, yeah, of course, has stabilized. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I buy that. (laughs) But it is interesting. It is interesting. And I I definitely can't explain some of these positions. So I I do think it's kind of entertaining to to see. I'd love to to see that plotted over time to see if there's uh, any of that, where, how you would get hold of that sort of data. Oh, GitHub has Um, a faucet you can just uh, download all the data from. Although there's probably going to be a limit on that. Yeah. Back to what you said before about the Microsoft documentation uh, thingy, it's actually listed here as a separate project of uh, number five with only 7,800 yeah. contributors. So it's even more That's than crazy. all of the <laughs> Microsofties together. And I must say yeah. that over the time that I was at Microsoft, I must say that over those years, you saw the quality of documentation really improve. Yeah. <laughs> so which that, is, it actually works very well. <laughs> Yeah, which is really that. That's the whole point about this: is many eyes leading to yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to better output, but in a curated but, way. Because uh, the yeah. documentation you did a submit, it got curated and then added if it was a good addition or change or whatever. It wasn't just yeah. everybody. It wasn't just like Wikipedia where you can just put whatever you want on it and then re- retroactively <laughs> people can t- take stuff off. Although that would be amusing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But but I think one of the one of the things about the the the, the first. Um, infographic and we said like there are a lot of 
the big names in open source are represented here. Uh, I also mentioned there were a few that are mm-hmm. conspicuously absent. And this is where we get into the whole... Um, Predatory uh, things. Sort of, well, yeah, I mean, that's a incredibly negative way of putting it, but (laughs) it is, it is. But, you know, one of the largest organizations that is monetizing open source um, incredibly successfully at the moment Mm -hmm. is Amazon with uh, their AWS offering, of course. Um, And, you know, they don't even make a a single, uh, a single entry in the top, what have we got here, the top um, five. So, I, you know, they are one of the organizations that is accused of um, just, you know, taking everything from open source, contributing very little back, um, you know, doing things like uh, forking projects when they decide they want to uh, get around various license changes, um you know, just looking at projects that are starting to do well and then offering a fork of that project as a, as a service within their, um, within their cloud environment. Um, it's, it's a, a very interesting way of monetizing open source. And I think one of the questions is how sustainable is that as a model? You know, if, if everybody were to move in that direction, the sort of the, the supposition here is that the whole system would just break down because yeah. if if everybody just starts consuming from open source with nobody contributing to open source, then or contributing back to open source, then you you essentially move back into proprietary yeah. silos. Really, I mean it. it it may well still be open source in some way, shape, or form, but if people aren't contributing back to the core, then you essentially you've you've decentralized. You end up with lots of li- lots of little different forks of a project that move off in their own different directions, and you lose a lot of the power of open source in many ways. Yeah, and the whole open source is a big ocean with a lot of fish all helping together to make it even better. This is draining the ocean. And it's a big ocean. It's going to take a while before it's dry. But as you say, this is not sustainable this way. And I do want to go on the record to say that, uh, okay, Amazon is the well, the most well-known that does it this way. There's plenty of other companies doing exactly the same thing. They're just not big enough to make it uh, to, to be noticed, let's call it that. They're not doing anything wrong. There is nothing bad. Well, I'm not going to say bad. There's nothing wrong, nothing legally, nothing criminal, nothing... I mean, they're yeah. using it in a way that is totally allowed by the different licenses. There's no discussion here about the legality, the, the right or wrong of the whole thing. It's more about the, is this a nice way of doing it? And as you say, if you're really dependent on this open source environment for your own livelihood, shouldn't you try not to foul the nest and try to keep it nice and clean and prosperous? Well... The way that organizations have attempted to defend themselves um, against this particular uh, approach has been really just changing the way that their that their code is licensed. Now, again, there's a, a nice uh, infographic this time. This one comes from Scale Venture Partners uh, that just shows um, 
you know, five different examples of organizations. I think the the number is up to eight or even nine or nine software um, companies that have growing. gone through changing their uh, their license for yeah you know, due to these kind of reasons. But the examples shown here are uh, Redis, MongoDB, Elastic, Confluent, and Chef. Now trying to think of some of the others. So CockroachDB was another one about a couple of months ago. And I say, so I think there's eight or nine mm-hmm. companies that have gone through this licensing change now. And the sort of, the the interesting thing here is that um, the changes aren't, they haven't all made the same change. Yep. Um, so for example, um, Chef has gone, uh, gone through a process of going from um, you know a semi semi open closed license to actually a completely Apache two everything open, which is kind of a um, you know the the flip side to something like um, the last trend, which yeah. Is, yeah, which has gone from sort of. Um, a sort of a proprietary code mixed in the the same repository um, uh, as as their sort of open source code, um, and it, it's you know the the differences between what organisations are changing are as varied as the organisations themselves. Yep. So it's not that there's a, um, a one size fits all answer to this. Um, I think people are still figuring it out. Because uh, some of these companies are making more available, others are making less available with a different code, others are making more available but with a different license agreement. That Everybody's trying to figure out how to make this work because uh, going, uh, okay, we're open source, we're going to close it all, that's not a solution either because that will no. again drain the ocean. It will again stop uh, the, 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 the proliferation of this great uh, environment we have. So. People are still figuring it out, and yeah, I mean, these are one, two, three, four, five. You said they're already nine now. I do think it's gonna have we're gonna get more and more before we get less and less, and at yeah. some point we'll have to figure out uh, what the best way forward is. Yeah, and there's a there's another article that um, kind of we we looked at when we were thinking about this topic, which just uh, gives some interesting sort of stats on uh, on AWS. You know, with they're sort of they are the undisputed Goliath of cloud computing, controlling something around thirty-two percent of the total worldwide market, or as much as the next three big providers combined. Mm-hmm. So, they're you know in terms of organisations really, um, you know, really taking a steer of you know how this space is evolving AWS have a a massive part to play in this and are making a um you know they're making a very strong statement by mm-hmm. the way that they're operating yep. now interesting interestingly their sort of their decision to um, release their own elastic distro was in their in their their own view was to simplify things and to make it clearer um, for users that uh, the, the the sort of their fork of elastic was the open parts only and that they were defending open source well I mean I think that's definitely one way to spin it <laughs> I'm not sure that I I'm not sure I quite agree with with the way that they're 
um, they're sort of doing. I think there's a there's a little bit of chicken and egg here. You know, the reason, or well, one of the reasons, certainly, I think Elastic made the change in the first place was the actions of AWS. So, for then AWS to say they're stepping in to defend open source, well, you know, you you could argue that they caused the change to happen in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we've also seen organizations make, and we've, I'm pretty sure we talked about this in the podcast before, make terrible, terrible uh, mistakes when changing their, their licenses, thinking that they can just change a license um, without doing the due diligence. You know, So, for example, there was an open source project, and I yeah, don't Mongolia. remember the name of the project, but it was one that uh, changed its license to add an addendum saying that the, the TSA and various other... U.S. organizations, um, no, government organizations, were not free to use the software, which, of course, you can't just add random clauses into a software license. That's uh, not the well, way these things work. Yes, you can, but you cannot well, you, expect the OSI to still say you're an open source license. Yeah, so Because I can put they, whatever I want in my, in my contracts. I mean, I can't but put slavery in there and stuff like that. You need to protect the human rights. But I could say that... Business A is not able to use this thing. That's something I can ask. That's something I can say. But then OSI says you're no longer a free software. So you no longer fall under this category. And that's where the problems came from. The same thing that Mongo at certain points put in a clause that I think they named Amazon by name. It's not able to use our stuff. Again, you can do that, but don't expect people to still see you as a free license. And if you're happy with that, great, and then keep it. But apparently Mongo wasn't happy with that, so they withdrew their SSPL from open source application. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a... This whole space is... Evolving very rapidly will continue to evolve. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, we're we're definitely at a, a place of um, fear right now. I think within open source, we're we're seeing organisations very unsure about what will happen next, how they could continue to. Uh, be profitable, uh, concerned about certain cloud providers, um, you know, essentially gobbling up their entire business um, just with sort of one minor change on their behalf and having to then re-justify their value to all of their customers. I think it's 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 a very dangerous place that we're in right now. And I think it's, it's important that organizations that are consuming um, open source technologies actually think about what they're doing when they're, um, you know, purchasing whatever it might be. You know, are you are you just gonna consume this ocean until it dries up, and then then what are you gonna do? Or do you actually care about the long term sustainability of open source? And are you therefore going to actually put some thought into your selection of technologies? to you know bearing that in mind so that you are supporting you know open source organizations i i i think we are we're getting to the point where that discussion really needs to factor very heavily in the decision making process and i think for a long time it's not been relevant people haven't seen it as relevant and they just go well provider x can give me the same product for you know 20% cheaper or whatever it might be I'll just do that without actually thinking yeah but if the source project of this dies in the future because everybody goes down that route 
then what are you left with? You, you're left with your entire infrastructure built on a dead end. And I think that's, there is a very real risk of these kind of things happening now. And, uh, you know, our our approach has always been to try and not so uh, FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt, but to try and educate and try mm. and share, you know, some of our viewpoints on these things, uh, you know, whether they're whether rightly or wrongly. Um, and I, I, I really do think that it's an important sort of uh, thing that needs to be considered right now. Yeah, I think the education thing is uh, the most important part because you're putting uh, the responsibility at the organization level. I would actually put it at the person level. Yes, organizations make decisions based on balance sheets, basically. People should make decisions based on a lot more than that. And it's up to us, yep. people who are actually using this, doing it for our organization, to look at what you're doing and how you're doing it. And one small thing that everybody can very easily do is get educated. Because a lot of the flame war going on at the moment is because somebody did a tweet that uh, company A has taken stuff out of open source. Oh, they're bad, they're bad, they're bad. Now, you've mentioned Elastic a couple of times, so I'm just going to give that example back. Yes, Elastic's license changed. Actually, you get more for free now. It's not open source. It doesn't have that name open source anymore. But if you're just yep. a person in a company that's using the software, things actually improved for you because you got more for free now. Well, before you had to actually have a license, which was a free license, but very difficult. Now it's just, no, download, it's all yours. It just doesn't have that, this is open source stamp on it anymore. Part of it still yeah. is, there's still the open source Apache thing, but the standard license is called, it's more free than it used to be before. It just doesn't have that name open source. And for some people, that's a very sticky point, and that's fair, no problem there. But it's not because somebody like a Mongo changed to a different licensing agreement or Redis uh, used a common clause or whatever, that it immediately becomes bad, evil. They have cookies now, as in dark side cookies. Yeah, inside joke, sorry. Uh, get educated. Look at, okay, they've changed things. Interesting. What did they change? How did they change? Why did they change it? And does this affect me? Because, as you say, it is changing. We have to look at how we're going to solve this because we have to keep it sustainable. It's, <clears throat> excuse me. Just like in the, the rainforest, all of these loggers, they're cutting down all the trees. When the trees are gone, they're out of business. And the open source is kind of in the same uh, situation right now that if we keep cannibalizing it like this, it will become less free. It will become less interactive, flexible, and we will lose a big part of what open source, what makes open source so, so good and uh, healthy to have and it yes organizations should take care of what they do but organizations are built out of people so don't uh, i mean a couple of couple of weeks ago we did an episode on open source as well and one of the things that i, that I said that point is if if you're not committing you can still talk about it promote open source well this is part of it educate yourself make sure you understand what's happening in the industry to, at the moment don't add to the fud don't add to the flame wars that doesn't help anybody but make sure you know what's happening, explain to people who are less informed, and try to make this work better. And through yourself, influence your, your team, through the team influence uh, the company, through the company influence uh, the environment, and try to get this thing back on rails. In the long term, I think this is going to be a balancing exercise. While open source has been very free and everything was possible, and now we kind of counter balancing towards the less 
nice way of doing it. There will be a reaction on that, which is happening right now. It'll swing back to the other side, but we'll have to keep on working towards that nice middle. And there will always be some people who are too good for them uh, to, 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 to be good. And some people who are not as good as they should be. On average, let's try and keep it in the middle. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So, uh, one of the the sort of points that I think you wanted to bring yeah. up was around, um, you know, some of the value of, uh, you know, why, why can't open source just be a project out there that everybody's contributing to? And uh, you you found a, an article... Um, yeah, just, just uh, by coincidence this morning, uh, this was picked yeah. up on my news feed, and I'm trying to find it again because I closed it. Oh, here it is. It's, it's, it's on the register. And for once, it's not a flame bait article. Mm. <laughs> no, I like the register. They're, they're pretty good. Uh, the title is kind of nice. Captain, we've detected disturbance in space-time. It's coming from Earth. Somebody audited the Kubernetes source. And it's actually it's not that big an article, but what it's talking about is that the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the CNCF, who's uh, kind of uh, the, the managing entity of a lot of open source things, amongst them Kubernetes, actually ordered a third-party audit of the Kubernetes code. And through that audit, 34 vulnerabilities came out, 4 high severity, 15 medium, or 8 low and 7 informational. Now, I'm not saying this to tell you open source is dangerous, don't do it, not at all. I think it's great. Every piece of software has vulnerabilities, all of them. The first person that writes code without any issues, I want to meet him and congratulate him because he's going to be a millionaire within a, moment, within a second. Software is complicated. There are going to be issues in there and people need to look at it. Having a third-party firm do an audit of your code, that's not cheap. That's something that it requires... You have to pay somebody to do that because it's a very unthankful job, I guess, <laughs> going yeah, through millions it, of lines of code. It's an expensive service. It's an expensive exactly. service that... Uh, and they actually they, they actually had two different security firms yes. uh, auditing, the, auditing the code. So it, it's, a, it's a very, very thorough kind of analysis. But... As, as some of the uh, comments mention on this article, it's important to recognise this isn't this isn't just a one-time thing. This is something that mm-hmm. you know, especially in large key infrastructure or key projects like uh, like Kubernetes, it's something that needs to be a regular um, a, a regular part of the process. That the regularly um, all the new contributions are uh, well, the whole project is reaudited again and again yep. as, through its throughout its lifetime. This isn't just a oh, we checked it once, it, we fixed all those things, it's all good now because the the project is always evolving. So these these kind of services are the sorts of things that you know. If an or if a if a project was just something free out there for everybody to consume, and uh, and there wasn't a, a entity behind it or shepherding it in some way, shape, or form, then you would never get this kind of centralized um, analysis. Now, that's not to say that you you, you know you couldn't commit a uh, or um, analysis of the code yourself, and there are. Multiple organisations that are cons- enterprise organisations that are, that consume open source code, projects, technologies, whatever you wish, uh, that run their own and commission their own pro- um, sort of uh, security analysis. But that's not the same as it being done uh, essentially on the upstream, because anything that you find locally, the chances of you actually 
uh, or the likelihood of you contributing all of that back upstream is in my in my experience has been f- relatively low um, and I think there's a few reasons for that mm-hmm. some of those reasons are that enterprises are just generally speaking not that great about contributing upstream you know lawyers and IP law and all that sort of thing gets fairly messy fairly quickly um, and I think the other thing is that in some cases these audits done by enterprise organizations are sometimes done uh how can i put this somewhat more politely they're done with perhaps a somewhat lack of understanding of what they're actually doing and they an audit needs to be um done by someone uh, done by an organization that really does understand open source and how it works and what they're doing and the fact that you know, a library is of a certain version might not mean anything because it could contain backported fixes and so on and so forth. It's it's something that, you know, when done by um, a, a truly experienced organization, as I, say, as I said earlier, it can be a very expensive process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it needs to be a third-party environment that doesn't have a, a stake in it because if you're using the software, using you're looking at the piece you're using and you're probably going to take a very good look at that part and maybe change something that has effect somewhere else. <clears throat> what you want is a, an organization that gets paid to do this without having any stake in it themselves. So they look at the whole coherent thing and do a yeah totally unbiased, let's call it that, let's call it unbiased review of the code and take everything out. Because if you're a developer, yeah, this could be better, but it's okay, it's not that bad. You can't go that way. And if it's just the no. people contributing, that's the danger you run into, that some things will slip through the, the cracks. By having a contract, no, I will pay you to do this. You need to do a good job, but I will sue you. <laughs> These things will get a lot better uh, visibility on the whole ecosystem of the project. And things like Kubernetes are huge. Uh, I would assume that things like MySQL, uh, MariaDB, uh, Linux got also huge benefits from stuff like this. Now, Linux, of course, gets a lot of, uh, in, uh, in, what do you call that, uh, in, in influx of you know, bug reports through various bug bounty programs, which yes, yeah. kind of indirectly also filter back to Linux. But uh, yeah, it's a thankless job. It's an expensive job and somebody needs to pay for this. Yep, indeed. So I think we have, uh, we've probably talked that one to death, but oh, I, no. think, <laughs> I think it's, by a long it's, <laughs> it's safe to say that this is not the last episode we're likely to do on this particular subject because the space is continuing to evolve, continuing to accelerate. We'll put a whole bunch of different links to various different viewpoints and articles that uh, we've used to somewhat inform and somewhat kind of structure our thoughts here. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a very big space. We've only scratched the surface. Uh, and, you know, I, I thoroughly recommend that uh, anybody and everybody listening kind of do do their own due diligence, do their own research. Educate make yourself. Sure that, uh, yeah, make sure that you're happy with, you know, with, with your approach and your organization's approach. And if you're not, then you know, raise that, you know, raise that to, to people that we need to, we need to make sure that we're actually approaching this from a sustainable basis mm-hmm. and that, that, that voice needs to be heard. So yeah. I don't want to be optimistic about this because the whole thing about open source is uh, freedom, openness, transparency. If certain entities are doing quote unquote bad things and not telling entire truths and stuff like that, 
it'll come out. Give it time, it'll come out. The truth will prevail, hopefully. <laughs> but I do. I'm yeah. positive. I'm uh, just because what the nature of open source. I am fairly confident that this is gonna end up all right. But that doesn't mean we don't need to pay, pay attention. And as I said before a couple of times, get educated on the subject. Indeed. So I think that's everything from me. In that case, that is all the time you have for today. You can support this podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution helps and you'll get some free bonuses from Manning Publications. <laughs> Don't forget their promotion going on right now. Also, we're on YouTube. Uh, as you probably listened through this episode and we were talking about Infographic 1, Infographic 2 and 3, it would have been great to be able to show you that. So help us get that 100 subscribers on YouTube and hey, you will get some visual goodness coming from us as well. Mm-hmm. Go to YouTube, like, subscribe, ring the notification bell, make Dave happy and do all the rest of the YouTube stuff. Also, go to www.roaringalpha.org, find a link to our Patreon page and more information about the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter using the AttitudeCast tag, and you can send all your feedback to podcast at roaringalpha.org or use the comment threads on the YouTube videos, of course. Until next time, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.